BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It is Wednesday, March 30th, live from my apartment in his attic. This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. I am DJ Nate, filling in for the one and only Dr. D. Today on the program, we have Monroe Anderson and Dick Simpson. And now, your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Tough on Crime Wednesday, and here's why. Because Republicans are tough on crime. What else, ladies and gentlemen? The story is uh, in the on the front pages of both newspapers uh, today. Let me get him out. Here we go. Uh, Pritzker hits GOP for board rejection. Democrats also reject prison panel nominee as being too lenient. This is one of those in-the-weeds stories that pops onto the front pages every now and then. Uh, the Illinois uh, Review Board, which must uh, governor, uh, governor appointees approved by the legislature, that it has to review parole decisions. So uh, people locked up for a long time appeal for parole to get out early. And they say that they've been rehabilitated. They say uh, that there's no sense in keeping them locked up anymore. They say that they have, uh, uh, they acknowledge the crimes that they committed and they apologize for the crimes that they committed, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and they ask that uh, in many cases they're old, 60s, 70s, 80s, even older than I am. And uh, they ask to be let go because it's a few more years to live or not long, much longer to live. And Well, you know what parole is, ladies and gentlemen. It's an act of compassion. It's an act of a sense that uh, people can rehabilitate, uh, that it is possible to change your life. Or at some point, you just got to uh, allow somebody uh, a break, if you will. Uh, there's no point uh, served by keeping them locked up. So ultimately, it is an act of compassion. And compassion is in short supply when crime is on the rise and people are feeling very angry. And that's where we are right now. And the Republicans, they sense that that anger, that fear, that reaction to crime is the winning ticket for them in November's election. So any talk of compassion, any talk of rehab, any people being rehabilitated, any talk that we should have any other approach to crime other than lock them up, throw away the key, is out the window. And as always, 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 and moments like this, when the Republicans really push hard, going right on any issue, Democrats, what do they do? They run, they scurry, they go to the right. Because compassion is really never a popular thing, particularly with crime and particularly when crime is rising. And so here we have this situation where uh, Governor Pritzker wanted to renominate members to essentially the parole board for Illinois, uh, and the Republicans, as one, lined up to vote against them, including one of the, the nominees, or one of the people was a woman named Eleanor Wilson, who is um, friends with the Obamas, just shows that she has connections uh, in Chicago politics. 
and Democrats afraid in the upcoming of election of being accused of being soft on crime, they scurry right and they join the Republicans uh, to vote against her on the grounds that she had urged the release of prisoners who've been held since the 60s and 70s for killing policemen. Now, killing policemen is obviously a very, very upsetting to society crime. And there are uh, relatives, children of the policemen who were killed, grandchildren, etc., and so forth, who are uh, asking that they the people who killed the cops remain in prison. But at some point, some point, society must decide, do we just keep locked up forever? Have they uh, atoned for the crimes that they committed? Are they so old that locking them up doesn't, isn't warranted anymore? Do we believe in second chances, even if the person's like that five more years to live? You know what? Sometimes... Republicans are almost, what, uh, compassionate themselves. And I recall, Monroe Anderson has joined us and he recalls this as well, in the early days of the Trump administration, Donald Trump was very proud of his first step crime bill, if you remember that one. That was the one that was going to do exactly what the members of the Illinois Review Board have done in Illinois. Take a look at the records of people who've been locked up for a long time and decide whether they warrant being released because at some point, again, you must show compassion. You must must reward the notion of rehabilitation. You you want to um, let people know that there's hope, that they're not just going to be locked away. And that was what the Republicans did. That's what Donald Trump stood for. And I remember at the time saying, I don't trust them. I probably said this to Monroe. I don't trust them. I do not trust the Republicans on this issue, that as soon as it's in their best political interest to throw out the window, first step bills and talk of compassion, they will do so. And they'll be going back to that old tough on crime rhetoric that always moves the conversation to the right. I saw it happen in the 90s, and so did Monroe. We're old enough to remember the crime bill. Joe Biden got swept up in that one. Remember Monroe? All the crime bill in the 1990s, and now we're seeing it again. Here we are. What is it? 30 years later. And it it was worse in the 90s than it is now. In terms of the crime, the actual legitimate crime is worse? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing is this: we can argue whether it's worse. Yes, I think think the numbers bear you out, actually. Absolutely. Statistically bear you out. Uh, and uh, by the way, interesting little dynamic. Somehow or other, I remember in the 90s when we had a lot of crime in Chicago, nobody really was really blaming Mayor Daley. It's, it's so bizarre the way the psyches of people work. There, I don't even call Republicans in the state of Illinois using crime as an issue against Mayor Daley. Most Republicans in Illinois were in line with Mayor Daley in various development deals. So they, they weren't going to upset that apple cart. But Monroe, I, I just have to tell you, I, I just keep living... I just keep living through these moments, tough on crime, and lock them up, attitude prevails. We don't even take a moment to breathe and go, Does this, is this really what we need to solve these ongoing problems? And I just watch Republicans push aggressively, and Democrats on the margins fold and move right. And that's where we are right now. It's a very disturbing time. Yeah, you, you know, and Chicago isn't even in the top 10 right now of the uh, the 
most dangerous cities in America. No. Uh, you know, it's Detroit, New Orleans, Baltimore, Memphis, Cleveland, Baton Rouge, Kansas City. Wait, time City, out. You, you memorized the list or are you reading it? No, I'm not oh, Google. God dang. <laughs> wow. I, I said, well, no, 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 no. I, no, no you're right. I memorized. <laughs> and it only took me a minute or two to, to memorize. The man's a genius. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. <laughs> All right. Uh, there's so much. No, I, yeah, I did okay. look it up, though, because – I know that we are the worst place in the world. And you also know we're in the middle of another tough-on-crime uh, backlash. And you also know we're in the right. midst of, we're heading to... Well, go, Governor Governor Irwin will take care of us, don't worry. Yes, Governor, yeah. <laughs> Mr. <laughs> Mr. Uh, the Mayor of Aurora, what, what a disgrace. This guy, Monroe, I say it every time you're on the show, up until the time that Ken Griffin decided he was going to be the Republican nominee and plucked him from obscurity, seemed like a pretty decent Democrat type, you know. That, uh, and now all of a sudden he's converted himself into a tough on crime, MAGA loving Republican, and it's kind of embarrassing to watch. Really, uh, he's one of the people saying that Pritzker's uh, soft on crime. Uh, because he dares to have appointees uh, who review the records of prisoners seeking parole uh, and view it as dispassionately as they can. Anyway, I want to move on. There's so much to talk about. There's so much in Trump world to, to talk about. That's what Monroe and I have been having an ongoing conversation uh, for five years. And But I know you got a lot on your mind uh, when it comes to um, <laughs> uh, Chris Rock and Will Smith and uh, I know I got a lot on my mind when it comes to Chris Rock and Will Smith. I can't quite shake myself from it, Monroe, even though people tell me, Ben, get over it. It's just a bunch of celebrities. It doesn't really matter. Uh, I, I think it does matter. And uh, otherwise, why are we so obsessively? What is it, Monroe, that we can't break free uh, from an obsession with Will Smith getting up in the middle of the Oscars and slapping Chris Rock. How come it has grabbed us so uh, intently, tensely? Well, first of all, it's it's historical. Never, I I, I can't remember how how long the uh, Academy Awards have been going. It's seventy some years, I think. But in all its time, never ever. Have you had someone come up on the stage and slap somebody else? Plus, Will Smith is the um, role model, almost as a father figure, especially because of King Richard. I mean, he's a he's he, he's a he's he's a latter day Bill Cosby. And, that didn't work out too well either. And, and, and so, yeah, I know. So, so he's just ruined the brand. Wait, time out. But it was, but it was. Shocking. Wait, time out. Let's think about that for a second. Yeah. You say Will Smith is the latter day Bill Cosby, and by that, what do you mean exactly? By what that, what I mean is. Will Smith had this really great reputation as being a caring, sharing role model mm. for black men. 
I, I, I thought uh, what you were getting. Go ahead. And, yeah, no, no, no. no I thought you were getting at again. that he was a uh, uh, a superstar black man who had the ability yeah, to cross too. over and be a superstar with white fans as well. Do you follow what I'm saying? That's what I thought you were, you're, that's yeah, what right. you were getting oh, no. at. Oh, no, no, no. The crossover Yeah, effect. right, no, that too. But both, you know, but both. Um, Bill Cosby had that reputation for a while with black men until he started preaching. Um, he, he went all not exactly MAGA, but for all practical purposes, MAGA, talking about how they ought to pull their pants up and they ought to do this and they ought to do that. And, um, you know, you don't, for, for a population, and, and although that population is about a third of blacks, it's not all black people by any stretch of the imagination, but for a population that has um, really doesn't have any boots uh, to pull up by the straps. The black poor, I mean, they are just generationally um, disadvantaged, historically disadvantaged. Then for when people started uh, start uh, chastising them and, 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 and slapping around even more than life does, it doesn't go over big among black folks in general. Well, I, uh, by the way, were you very susceptible? I don't know if I ever asked you this question. <clears throat> uh, you and I are, are both uh, getting up there in age, and what happens to people when they get up there in age, uh, and this is not just black people, it's white people, it's all people. What happens when they get up there in age is they start looking back uh, at the younger generations with sort of disdain. And I'm like, that's not how we did it. And I can't believe you're doing X, Y, Z. Uh, and it's almost as like you start echoing things without realizing that your parents said to you, like, how long are you going to let your hair grow before you cut your hair? And then it's like, how many tattoos? <laughs> you got to get another tattoo. You know, you an earring. You're too young for an ear, blah, 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 et cetera, so forth. And uh, so Bill Cosby when he was going around, pull up your pants, don't wear the baggy pants, uh, don't slouch, don't curse, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, I knew a lot of older black guys were like, yeah, that's that's right, this this generation, da 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 Were you ever susceptible to that, Monroe? Did you ever find yourself going, well, you know, uh, Cosby's got a point. Did you ever find yourself saying that? No, <laughs> okay. no, 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 no. In fact, I, I, when I, I, I wrote one column criticizing him for doing that. And uh, Michael Eric Dyson... Oh, yeah, you're a good friend, yeah. Uh, ...quoted me <laughs> because he had attacked... He, he had attacked uh, Cosby for doing that. And, and you know, and I, I've known Michael for some years, and so he, he saw that as my coming to his, his rescue because people were criticizing him for criticizing Cosby. So you never, ever, ever were tempted to say this younger generation, I don't know what they're, kids these days, you never were tempted to say that? No, 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 no. Because I, you know, I was proudly rebellious in my youth. Uh, and 
So I just see what they're doing now, uh, the kids now, as um, an extension or a a a a variety, just a, just a, a a different way of doing the same thing I did when I was that young. And so no, I, I'm not critical. It's you know, young people will be young people, and um, as a general rule, uh, for example, um, what I've seen. Uh, is um, young girls rebelling against their um, feminist mothers and and being as girly as they could possibly be, you know? And because again, each generation has to chooses to define itself, and and not always, not in all, and not in always, but. Part of that definition is doing just the opposite of what their parents or the previous generation did. All right. Well, uh, I give you a lot of uh, credit for that. A lot of restraint there. Uh, there it's a really tempting thing, ladies and gentlemen, when you get older to start denouncing uh, what the next no, generation is doing. I tell you yeah, that right fact, now. Yeah. In fact, I told my sons that if I were um, young, a young black male, man now, I'd be a rapper. I, I wasn't an R&B singer because I couldn't <laughs> sing. <laughs> but I, I, could, I could have been a rapper. I mean, you know, as a young person, I'd, I'd look foolish not trying to. Yeah. I don't know some old people. All right, Uh, there was a a, a interesting uh, article uh, in the New York Times today that if anybody can read it, I urge him. Uh, Wesley Morris wrote it: "The sting a slap leaves behind." Uh, Wesley Morris is a movie critic and uh, just a general culture affairs writer for the New York Times. Very learned guy, really knows his stuff. Monroe, this guy is like an encyclopedia. Uh, He's Sergio Mims like in his knowledge of movies and uh, culture, etc. and so forth, Uh, and. he, he his general thesis theme that he begins with is that uh, Will Smith standing up for, uh, and slapping Chris Rock in the face uh, is uh, is in some ways just one more bit of pandemic related insanity that is going around. Uh, here's his lead. This pandemic is still killing. The virus at its center is one of the body, but it's also costing us our minds. A sacked capital, an invaded and decimated sovereign nation, a raft of refugee crises, more American murders, more overdoses, more harassment for being Asian, for being black, for being trans, for being on the subway, for waiting to ride the subway, etc., and so forth. And he leads that up to... Uh, Will Smith uh, standing up in the middle of the Oscars and slapping Chris Rock in the face. Do you kind of do you agree with that in some level that this is just? Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't disagree with that. I mean, the the pandemic has had a, a significant impact on our psyche. You, you, you know, um, people have gained weight. Uh, people way more alcoholics now than there was three years ago. Uh, uh, more suicides, more more um, people stressed out or depressed. So no, and, and so it's 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 had an enormous impact on us. I I agree with that, but I also would submit that two days ago, if 
Chris Rock would have been the Rock. <laughs> Will would have restrained himself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. No, I. Uh, that 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 is. Uh, that's a valid point, and I've someone else, I I don't know who else I saw. Somebody else put that on Facebook. I don't know. Maybe it was you. I, I I've heard that one before, and uh, embedded in that is the notion uh, that the, these acts that we view as impulsive uh, are not that impulsive. That there's a certain amount of uh, calculation uh, that goes into it, uh, Monroe, and uh, so that in this case. What you're getting at is that Will Smith calculated, hmm, if I go up there and smack him, will he hit me back? And will it hurt if he hits me back? Right. Uh, right. Yeah, right. Uh, and uh, she goes, yeah, I'll, wait. I'll take my chances. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you may be on to something. The other point I'll, I'll make uh, before we uh, go on, uh, Wesley Morris uh, pointed this out. It was that last night um, at the Oscars, uh, the other night, they were making a tribute to Sidney Poitier. And um, you and I may have talked about this after Sidney Poitier died. Uh, in, the, in the movie In the Heat of the Night, there was this just uh, sh shocking moment where Sidney Poitier's character slaps the face of a white man. First, the white man slapped him. And then he slapped the white man. And back in 1967, and went, whoa. Uh, uh, in, in, in the it, South. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah, you could get away with it in the North to, to an extent. I mean, and the reality is that uh, you can't always get away from, uh, with it North or South today. It just depends on um, who shows up in a blue uniform and make the determination later. Yeah, well, you shouldn't be slapping anybody anyway. Uh, you yeah, know. right. Well, this is true. <laughs> right. Anderson. Or slapping them yeah. back. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's uh, just a little, it was beyond ironic, I suppose, uh, Wesley Morris, a good point, pointing out that they were honoring Sidney Poitier, for, and that was this is compelling moment in his career, and here we are, uh, and we're watching Will Smith smack, smack Chris Rick. All right, let's move on from that one, uh, Monroe, and uh, let's talk a little about uh, our colleague Lee Allen Jones who comes on the show with you from time to time uh, and takes an alternative view on foreign affairs. We have some interesting debates and he's an old friend of yours. He's uh, a protege of yours. And I uh, I was thinking of him because I, the last time he was on the show I got some response from people saying you know why are you putting him on this your show? He's he's too out there. He's too uh, uh, he's, he's too pro-Putin. He's uh, you know he um uh, he's, he's, I don't know why you're giving that guy any time. And I thought that was unfair. I think, uh, Lee Allen, I'm going to defend Lee Allen. I feel he's got a uh, legitimate viewpoint and he backs himself up, uh, as much as he can, uh, with, uh, facts. Uh, and he's respectful of you and me, you know, you, you say what you say, he says what he says, you know what I'm saying? It's, uh, I feel like we're at a stage right now, Monroe, on, on the war, in Ukraine, we're very dangerous that any dissent, and this is an essay that was in the New York Times today as well, uh, made me think about this, any dissent uh, from whatever the standard worldview is in the United States, there's a standard view in the United States, which is that Putin is an aggressor and, he must, and it must be stopped uh, because it's just people, innocent people getting slaughtered 
But any any kind of dissent that offers an alternative view of like what led to the conflict, what led to the war, uh, should be stamped out and the people condemned as traitors. I don't know if that's healthy for uh, American democracy. Your thoughts about this? Oh, it, 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 it's not. You know, although I I think that we should be in support of um, the U- Ukraine as Zelensky. I think we should be in support of them, but I don't I don't think there should be any sort of loyalty test involved in it. And um, you know. Thank God for that we have a champion who um, is going against the tide. And he's not only is he backing Putin, but he's asking Putin for <laughs> help on his popularity. <laughs> he, he wants, he, he wants um, Putin to release information on Hunter Biden. And I'll give you one guess as to who that might be. Donald John Trump. Oh, you! Yeah, <laughs> Donald John Trump. I missed that. I I, mean, I was obsessively following Trump news uh, over the last few days. Uh, the the case that's being built against him, uh, and we're uh, regarding um, the January sixth insurrection uh, and the complicity of uh, Jeannie Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, uh, in the, that insurrection and the uh, refusal of Clarence Thomas to uh, acknowledge that there is a conflict of interest between his wife's political activities and his rulings, of much less recuse himself. On the, uh, this is really well on my mind, Monroe, and I did not even know, uh, I missed somehow or other, that Trump had reached out to Putin. And that is, see, okay, that is a level of insanity well beyond anything Lee Allen Jones uh, ever says on, on our show. You know what I'm saying? It's not like Lee Allen right. is reaching out to Putin for yeah, assistance. Right. Exactly. So what's that all about? What, why do you think Trump persists in that? Do, do you think that his sense, is, sense of it is that, uh, by and large, uh, that uh, by and large MAGA is still on Putin's side uh, on this endeavor? Uh, I think that, you know, and it's dangerous even crawling inside Trump's head. But being the brave man that I am, <laughs> I think that he was just trying to get some, some A, he's trying trying to um, take attention off of all these, this net that's tightening around him, this legal net. You know, they're, they're finding more and more stuff that shows that he he was behind an insurrection, and so this is this is one of his swinging up against the wall. Well, let's see if it sticks uh, things. But also, um, if you'll recall, Putin, if I mean Russia, if you're listening, um, um, ex- ex- expose the emails, the Clinton emails. And so, if if Russia, if Putin has any information on Hunter Biden, that would be a nice distraction, a big distraction for him. Um, but this this is Trump's problem, is that um, if we didn't know that Putin was a liar, uh, th- this war has, has dem- demonstrates day in and day out that he is. And so 
Putin may have told Trump that he had some dirt on Biden just to, to, to seduce Trump more into his strange bed. bed. Uh, his, uh, political bed. Uh, so we don't know. But I think uh, Putin has more problems than worry about whatever Hunter Biden or Trump. You know, because Putin is hoping that uh, Trump gets back in office so they could play footsies together again. But um, he, he has more pressing problems. He's losing the war right now in, in, in Ukraine. He said, you know, this is small, uh, outgunned, outmanned army is kicking his army's butt. Yeah, the... Uh the invasion has definitely been stalled, to put it mildly. Uh, I don't. I have no idea, and this is uh, this is where I have some sympathy with the Lee Allen Joneses of the world. I'm not completely certain that this is the most obvious statement in the world. That all the information that I am receiving via the normal channels is are is accurate. I mean, this is a wartime. There's just nothing but lies and disinformation. We have to deal with lies and disinformation during peacetime. We have to in the, in the city of Chicago. I'm on a regular basis. I'm trying to you know siphon out the truth from the disinformation, uh, Monroe, and from the propaganda and from the calculated releasing of certain documents, but not all the documents. Uh, so you know that goes on uh, on a regular basis anyway. In the middle of war. Good God. And then uh, when they call you a traitor, if you kind of disagree with anything that's officially being presented, that makes that raises the stakes uh, even higher. But I... I unless, you, unless you're Donald Trump. Then, then, you, then you can you can do anti-American things and not be called a traitor. Absolutely. Well, listen. I, I mean, okay. So... This is the perversity of this uh, essay that's uh, in today's New York Times. The friends of our enemy isn't a traitor. And this kind of get ties up the, what I began with, Monroe, how there's no honest debate anywhere near the Republican Party these days. So the, uh, I talked about in terms of on crime, uh, where the, the Republicans are just going to scare every white people and basically into voting Republican in the uh, upcoming November elections in order to take control of Congress and the Senate. And if they, if they're, they really want to take control of the state of Illinois as well. Uh, you keep saying that well, won't happen, I, I, but. Yeah. 10, 10, 10 years ago, I've, I've used to refer to it as the fear and smear yeah. machine. And it's back. Big back time. big time. So, so there's this essay in the New York Times today uh, that I was very sympathetic to by a gentleman named Peter Beinart, uh, and he he wasn't that he was defending Tucker Carlson and uh, uh, Tulsi Gabbard. He was simply saying that just because they have a different viewpoint than what just like most journalists are presenting right now, or most people in this country or politicians are presenting uh, in terms of Putin, does not mean they're traitors. Okay, this is his point of view that he uh, asserts. Yeah, you know, the, the thing is, I, I, I can't go that far. I mean, RT, Russia, Russia TV is literally running their commentaries um, every day, along with claims that Russia is not bombing Ukraine. Ukraine, 
Ukraine is bombing itself to get sympathy from the world or some crazy reason. You know, so, I mean, it's uh, Tucker Carlson. I don't know why he's doing this, but um, I think you could call him a traitor. Do you think Jane Fonda was a traitor during the Vietnam War? Okay, so Jane Fonda went to North Vietnam during the war uh, and posed uh, with uh, anti-artillery uh, weapon or uh, that uh, to shoot that that the, the Vietnamese were using to shoot down uh, planes that were bombing them. Uh, let's point that out. Uh, and so, which is far beyond anything Tucker Carlson has done. So, why is Tucker Carlson a traitor and not Jane Fonda? Because um, the difference being that Jane Fonda took the sides of the victims. And Tucker is taking the sides of the perpetrators. You know, folks, I can't argue with that. <laughs> I can't argue. That's a, that's a good point, Monroe. I cannot argue. That's a, uh, yeah. I, I, uh, I may have thought differently if uh, about that if I were an American soldier uh, stationed in Vietnam. But when you look at it overall, you're absolutely correct. So... Yeah, and, and a lot of the American soldiers, like the Russian soldiers today, were wondering, what in the fuck are yeah. we doing? Why yeah. are we here? You know, and that's why the uh, uh, drug addiction was rampant during Vietnam, because these guys were there. They were in some foreign country they knew nothing about, and the only reason they were there was to um, protect... Um, America from communism or something, uh, which was um, a little far-fetched. And so they were getting high, and the morale wasn't that great. And then they came back from Vietnam, and they weren't heroes. They weren't, they weren't celebrated as heroes as World War II soldiers had. And in fact, um, sometimes they were cursed and spit upon for being baby killers because you had the episode where some of our soldiers literally shot up villagers and children were among them. You know, so it's, it's, uh, Vietnam was not a good war. No, it was not. And, uh, it, it, and you, Ukraine is not a good war for Russia. Uh, no, it's, and it's not, I agree with both points. And my other point about Tucker Carlson uh, is that he's completely dishonest in how he plays the game. And so uh, right. he would, in yeah. a heartbeat, uh, and he does in a heartbeat, uh, exaggerate, distort uh, the uh, uh, the goals and uh, of people he opposes. So, you know, he'll be a part of the chorus of saying the Democrats are soft on crime while ignoring all the issues uh, that the Democrats are struggling with when you talk about things like rehabilitation. Do you follow what I'm saying? So, Monroe, he would do exactly to everybody else that he does on an ongoing basis what people are doing to him right now. So, exactly. you know, he plays that game. That's his game. That's his sandbox. Right. So, uh, right. Yeah, I don't feel sorry okay. for him at okay. all. Okay, Bill, let me interrupt you a minute. I had great difficulty figuring out how to get on this Riverside side. Yeah, we're going to take a break. Uh, and that's a good point. Uh, and uh, 
we're gonna we're gonna take a break. We come back. Uh, we hope to have Dick Simpson. So we'll take a break. We are back. Uh, Monroe Anderson still with us, and we're joined by uh, the great, the legendary Dick Simpson. Uh, for folks of my generation, you remember Dick Simpson as an alderman? Yes, he was an alderman. He was the alderman from Lakeview back in the 1970s. I'm not making this up, ladies and gentlemen. And a liberal uh, one. A liberal. He was a liberal alderman, okay? Back when liberals were proud of being liberals. Not like today. When, oh, don't call me a liberal. I'm a progressive. Uh, he was a liberal alderman. Uh, he got so much under Mayor Daley's skin. You remember this, Monroe? That they, uh, Mayor Daley, they shut off his mic and during debate, and they, the sergeant of arms came and said, sit down, Simpson. And they tried <laughs> to wrestle him into his chair. But uh, the only problem was they were too small. They couldn't do it. Right. Yeah, I, no, Dick, Dick Simpson not, was a big Dick, feller, man. Yeah, Dick is no Chris Rock. <laughs> no, he's no. Oh, we're tying our conversations together. But then the sergeants of arms, Monroe, did not attempt to slap Dick Simpson. Okay. They just said, sit down. Uh, so anyway, uh, Dick Simpson, of course, has gone on to become a professor at the University of Illinois uh, here in Chicago. The author of many, many books, including one called Democracy Rebirth, um, The View from Chicago as though uh, democracy could ever have a strong comeback in the city of Chicago. I'm going to try to put away my jaded, uh, cynical, or, no, or skeptical, I should say, view of Chicago. Dick, and why don't uh, you start off by uh, talking about some of the themes uh, in your book and that some of the issues that you're addressing in the book that you uh, just released. Go ahead. Yeah, it could have been called The Crisis or The Challenges of Democracy. What I try and do in the book is first summarize the problems but to do it in a way that I show how they actually work in Chicago in practice, not just in an abstract sense. So I cover issues like income inequality, racial injustice, uh, the uh, whole question of money in politics, uh, the misuse of money in campaign finance, but also in lobbying, the problems of, um, of gridlock that has often uh, be, uh, been a terrible problem at the national level, but also comes from polarization, what's sometimes called the politics of resentment. And I go through a lot of these problems, like the problems with the Senate and the problems with the Electoral College and structural problems. Uh, but, and of course, I cover corruption. Uh, what would a book about uh, problems of democracy, uh, particularly in Chicago, be without covering corruption? But then I talk about how we might be able to reform uh, the system with 25 steps, basically what it gets at, besides the particular issues, is that we need to have a more participatory form of democracy locally. And that in terms of national politics, we need to have more deliberative democracy. We need our representatives like our congressmen to pay attention to what we think, and we need to know more about how government works. All right. Uh, you mentioned something. I took a note, uh, scrolled it down, and uh, let you uh, to elaborate a bit, uh, Dick. Uh, you talked about uh, polarization, the problems or of resentment uh, in uh, politics. What what are you getting at when you talk about that resentment in politics? Well, there's a particularly good book on uh, Scott Walker and Wisconsin uh, called "The Politics of Resentment." 
And which uh, the author points out in that book is the way in which there's a divide between urban and rural. And so, for instance, the Trump voters tend to be rural voters. The Democratic voters tend to be urban voters. And the, the rural folks are really unhappy. Um, there's an identity politics. They, they don't think that those people like us in the city know anything about them. And we don't have the same values, don't have the same work ethic that they feel they have. And yet they're being cheated because the cities have too much power. And nationally, uh, the cities have too much control. And, of course, the people in the cities have the reverse view, and often just as strongly. We've had people in the cities and the suburbs as well lose their jobs, uh, lose their income, lose their housing. They're mad. Uh, and that keeps a politics that's more than just, I disagree about this policy or that policy. I disagree with you because of who you are and you disagree with me because of who I am. That's a much more serious divide. And the way the founding uh, fathers and others thought about it is, it's fine to disagree on policy. It's, you know, we are, but as long as we share the same goal of democracy and justice and equality, it's fine if we disagree about the tax structure. Uh, but it's not fine if we don't have any what they call fellow feeling, if we don't believe that each other are equally value, if we don't understand each other. Uh, then we're going to get into fights which are like the fights that we usually see in Chicago, deeply racial, deeply contentious, uh, believing the other person isn't really uh, an equal partner in the project of democracy. Uh, I was going to ask you uh, to uh, spell out how the politics of uh, resentment play out locally. Uh, you talked about it in terms of the divide between cities and uh, rural areas. So how in the city of Chicago do you see uh, the politics of resentment playing it out? Well, in Chicago, other than the split between the machine and the reformers, or sometimes now the machine and the progressives and so forth, the real split has been a racial split. Um, and it goes back throughout all of Chicago's history. Uh, back actually in the sort of the Richard J. Daly period, there was a kind of split between the ethnic groups, the Poles and the Jews and the, the Irish and so forth. There's white ethnic groups often that had most of the power and they fought among each other from ethnic groups. But since uh, Richard J. Daly's time, uh, the politics of Chicago has mostly been racial conflict. If you think about the Harold Washington election, or as Monroe knows so well, uh, the election of Harold's uh, successor, Eugene Sawyer, those were great racial battles. When we decided who would replace Richard J. Daly, those were ethnic battles. We met as aldermen and ethnic groups, and blacks were just another ethnic group from the point of view of the way things worked at City Hall at the time and, and Richard J. Daly. But it became very contentious, very racial. And one of the things I trace in the book is what a big difference between the Harold Washington election and the racial balance then when Harold got the black vote and some of the rainbow coalition of whites and progressives and uh, Latinos. Uh, but uh, if you fast forward to Lori Lightfoot's election, she won with the white vote and by a rainbow coalition that had some blacks and, and Latinos supporting her. It's a very different balance in Chicago between the races today. 
than we had back in the days of council wars, as they were called. Uh, well, I was uh, going to push back just a little bit about uh, what went down in the 70s. Uh, I'm not so certain that blacks were treated as just another ethnic group back in the 1970s after old man Daly died, Richard J. Daly, not the kid from the 90s. Uh, Dick, and I'll say this. Because the man who should have been elevated to replace Richard Day, uh, J. Daly was a black man. And uh, <laughs> the, the powers of being in this city pretty much said, no way that is that going to happen. And so it would be like any white person. Not it, Ethnicity didn't matter. It was a Croatian-American who actually got the gig replacing an Irish-American. And I don't recall absolutely anybody in the city of Chicago saying, you know... Uh, it's only fair that uh, we have an Irishman replace an Irishman because it would be unfair to the Irishman. Do you follow what I'm saying? So even then, there was a distinction, a racial distinction, black and white, that trumped any ethnic uh, rivalries. That's my thoughts on it. What's your response? No, I think there's, I think there's truth to that. But, it, but if you look at the later period, um, say the election of Eugene Sawyer, the whites were caucusing uh, trying to see if they could get Dick Mel or one of them to be elected when they were told there would be race riots if that happened. Um, they then backed off and decided, okay, we'll go with Sawyer because at least he's been part of the political party and we think we can control him. They weren't able to, but that's what they thought at the time. Um, it, there, there was a difference in tenure, but my main point is that in Chicago, the difference hasn't been between Democrats and Republicans. You have to hunt really hard to find a Republican in Chicago. There's not a single alderman that will say there's a Republican. There are a couple of white aldermen that actually are, but they won't say so. Uh, there's not a single Republican holding citywide office. There's not a single Republican holding countywide office. And the only Republicans who hold office are a couple of guys that uh, represent the suburbs on the county board. That's so our our split in Chicago isn't basically between Democrats and Republicans. It's between the racial balances within the Democratic Party and the ideological balances between the different groups like the old machine, the conservatives, uh, the sort of the liberal middle uh, the, that are the committee chairman and then the progressives. Yeah. To put it, put a spotlight on what Dick is saying, uh, Mayor Daley one, King Daly, ran uh, the expressway through the Italian community uh, because he wasn't happy with them either. And, and, and it became the dividing line to keep the blacks in place on the south side. Uh, but, you know, that, that was a strategically placed expressway, and we, and, and, and we lost little Italy for the most part. I mean, there was a little of it left, but not much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we gained, uh, on the other hand, UIC, where uh, Dick Simpson is a professor now. So you could say uh, we got something out of that one. Yeah, right. Uh, you could make that argument. Uh, Dick, you talk a, a lot about the machine. And uh, I've, my and I have had this conversation a few times. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. The machine, as we uh, view it, people of our generation view it, we're all roughly the same age, more or less. Uh, as we view it, maybe non-existent uh, today, uh, and it may be a term without uh, real meal, uh, compelling meaning uh, to a millennial. 
or someone who uh, came of age in this century. Your thoughts on the machine as it was when uh, you were an alderman and the quote-unquote machine as it is today. So the classic uh, political machine is the Richard J. Daley machine. It uh, reached its height under Richard J. Daley, and it was a hierarchical political party organization, which, of course, wanted to win elections and control government. But it was characterized uh, really by three factors, patronage, which yielded the precinct captains to work the precincts and get the votes, favors to the voters who voted right, meaning the whole family, uh, and then uh, mostly crooked contracts to businessmen who funded the political campaigns, even though the businessmen might be Republicans. Um, that's the old form of the machine, and, and it was really very strongly rooted in the patronage system. There were 35,000 patronage workers under Richard J. Daley and the various local governments. Uh, the machine was sort of attacked heavily under Harold Washington and to some extent uh, faded further under Sawyer and got reformed under Richard M. Daley. It's what I call the new Daley machine. And the biggest, there were two factors in the new daily machine that made it different. The biggest one that's most obvious is that um, under Richard M. Daly, he brought in the people in the global economy. So where his father never spent anywhere near a million dollars in city elections, the son, Richard M. Daly, spent over $7 million. And then when it goes all the way to... Um, uh, Mayor 1%, as he sometimes calls, um, that followed daily, uh, the, uh, the cost went up to $32 million in a single election uh, for, for mayor. So there was a transmogrification of the, uh, the machine, but there still was one. The other factor was that it, Richard M. Daly did not pass the jobs to the ward committeemen. He kept all the jobs for the daily organizations like the Hispanic Democratic Organization. And the, you're quite right, the machine is fading. There's still a block in the city council of four or five aldermen like the Eddie Burks uh, that band together and vote the same. But the, uh, the machine has faded significantly. And the only question, and the number of patronage jobs from Richard J. Daly to Richard M. Daly went down from 35,000 to 5,000, uh, as we know from the Sorich trials. So the, there's been a continual decline in the machine. Nonetheless, the culture of machine politics that came out of the old days is still around, and it shows up most easily in corruption. We are still the most corrupt city in, um, in the United States, and we're the third most corrupt state in the United States by federal convictions uh, since 1976, when the Department of Justice first started keeping the data. Who's one and two, Dick? Uh, so one and two vary by whether you look at the total number of convictions. So if you look at total number of convictions, New York and California are so much bigger as a state, that they become one and two. If you look at um, corruption per capita, Louisiana and Washington, D.C., if you think of Washington, D.C. as a state, are the two most. And so yeah. I think of it as Washington and Louisiana. <laughs> we got a ways yeah, to go, right. Chicago. Where's that No, no, pride? Chicago's <laughs> doing fine. The rest of the state's got to pick up the pace a bit. Uh, okay. 
Wait, when you say Washington, do you talking about the municipal government of Washington, or are you talking about Washington in terms of the the U.S. Congress? Uh, it's both, but it's mostly, you know, the reason there's so many trials in Washington, D.C. is the Department of Justice is there, so it's down the street to go to the federal courts. And yes, it's mostly congressmen and federal employees that are being convicted in Washington, D.C., but there are plenty of I mean, the former mayor of Washington, D.C. was convicted, for instance, of yes, corruption. that is true. Uh, but I just want to say, uh, if you view it as a competition, and Chicago likes to be number one, we are at an unfair advantage uh, against Washington, D.C. if you're counting Congress. Come on, Monroe. You got people, corrupt people from every corner of the country coming into Washington. Well, we don't have that. I thought Texas would be in, in competition. but No, New Jersey comes up pretty well. The way you... Uh, you know, if you think about where were political machines the strongest, they are in Louisiana, New Jersey. The whole state of Texas is a, is a political machine, but it's not as strong as either in history as either New Jersey or Louisiana. We've got plenty of corrupt uh, people in Texas these days, but they're still down the list uh, in comparison. All right. So you got at something early on and that I'd like to follow up on. Monroe and I talk about this a lot uh, on our show. We spend a lot of time talking about Trump. We spend a lot of time talking about the MAGA movement. Uh, and you talked about the, the notion of a fellowship that binds us. And uh, I was thinking this a lot uh, lately uh, because I've lived through now. Um, I lived through Watergate. Uh, Dick Simpson, and uh, now I'm living through this ongoing investigation into the insurrection. And if the thoughts, the parallels are on my mind, because uh, yesterday the Washington Post revealed that there's a seven-hour gap, Monroe Anderson, seven hours. Versus 18 minutes. Versus 18 (laughs) minutes. Uh, Seven-hour gap, Dick Simpson, I don't know if you follow this stuff, but there's seven-hour gap in the phone archives of President Trump on January 6th, the day of the insurrection. There's seven hours unaccounted for, okay? So we don't know who he was talking to. Uh, we don't know who, who, who was exchanging information with him at that crucial moment. And the parallel, as Monroe pointed out, is that there was an 18-minute gap uh, in the tapes about uh, that uh, President uh, Nixon taped every conversation he had. And there were 18 minutes that were absent during which I think he was talking about um, the conspiracy to bury uh, the Watergate crime. Uh, so, Dick, I don't see anything remotely resembling the fellowship, if you will, that existed in the 70s when more or less there were Republicans who were joining Democrats in investigating uh, Nixon's crimes. Right now, go ahead. No, the, the the polarization between the parties, both in the public and in the Congress and in other bodies like the Congress, is uh, as great as it's been. It's not the greatest we've ever had. We had the Civil War, for instance. We also had in the American Revolution a number of British loyalists among the colonists who wanted to stay with Britain. So we've had some very tense times uh, in our country, but this is one of the the highest levels of polarization um, that we've seen in uh, in half a century. Uh, so it's a it's a very dangerous time because there's not much level for compromise. Imagine what would have happened if the insurrection had succeeded. 
and uh, they were able to prevent the certification of the election of Joe Biden, we would have had probably literally a civil war uh, following that. Um, and we're still not out of the woods on that kind of thing. Strangely enough, the uh, U- war in the Ukraine has united us more than almost any single thing in recent years, because whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you probably have the same view that we should help Ukraine, but we're not, we don't want to go to nuclear war with Russia. So the the policy position on the Ukraine, while there's some arguments about no-fly zones and, and details, the general range of agreement is, much, is, a, is a good example of what it should be in sort of all of our issues. Um, we ought to have a sense of what we want as a people that's best for the country, and then we can argue about means. Just like with Ukraine, we can argue about whether or not there should be a no-fly zone or not. There might be differences there, but whether we should send weapons to Ukraine or send humanitarian aid, there's not a there's not a, a bit of difference between Democrats and Republicans. Well, I, uh, there is uh, – Monroe, Monroe and I were talking about this uh, before uh, you came on. There is uh, There's a strong faction of MAGA uh, that is – more, it seems, uh, more hostile to Biden uh, than they are uh, to Russian aggression. Uh, that's for certain. Uh, so I have a feeling that as soon as there's anything remotely resembling a truce or a ceasefire in Ukraine, there will be a pivot, uh, Dick, that uh, by MAGA uh, away uh, from what this sense of bipartisanship and immediately start attacking uh, Putin again. I, I, I think that will happen immediately. Monroe, do you agree with me on that uh, point? Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the, the thing that I wonder about is will there be a realization with the MAGA people that they are no different, uh, and that Trump is no different from Putin, and, and MAGA is no different from the Russians, in the positioning they've taken, um, where they're fed, they're, they're fed these lies from Fox, and um, there's this whole Orwellian world that they live in. Will they come to realize that as a result of what's been happening in Russia, or will they just shrug it off? Dick, your thoughts? Well, I think there will be. Um continued tension. I mean, uh, Trump is planning to run in 2024 unless the courts catch up with him first. Um, you know, I, I, you know, the, the prediction for 2020 this year in terms of domestic politics is the Republicans will take back at least one house in the Congress. If so, we'll get gridlock. If we get gridlock, there will be great anger, um, from the Democratic side, and uh, that we can't get anything done. We can't get the uh, the government funded. We can't get uh, new programs underway, and so forth. So no, we're not out of the woods between the difference between uh, Trump and the Trump supporters, and now the Republican Party that's been captured by Trump uh, and uh, the other side. But remember how close it is. I mean, in the last election, the last presidential election, there was only 7 million votes a difference. It was 81 million in support of Biden and 74 million in support of Trump. 74 million people is a whole lot of people. Um, you know, we've 
trying to figure out how we get through all of the problems is um, is is where we are. And it's it's it, it there is no one silver bullet. There's not like you can say, well, we'll just defeat Trump in 2024 and everything will go back to being hunky dory and we won't have any problems in the country. Our problems are so deep seated. Uh, Income inequality isn't going anywhere soon. Uh, we still haven't solved the racial problem after 200 years of trying uh, to different extents that people were trying, uh, so on and so forth with all of it. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a, a task that we're going to have to dedicate ourselves to for decades. You know, we were talking a little bit about corruption earlier. There is no one solution to corruption either. It's not just let's convict Eddie Burke or Mike Madigan or someone and corruption will magically disappear. We've got to completely change our system. One of the things that has happened in Illinois that's good is we have passed a new law that says uh, that uh, civic engagement education has to be taught in high school. You can't graduate high school anymore without taking that kind of, of course, which isn't the old three branches of government kind of civics class of our time. Uh, it's uh, it's meant to really help people understand how to run this democracy that we're the owners of. We're the owners, but we don't know how to operate the machine. We don't know how to make it work. And we have to look the Greeks even 2,500 years ago knew that the only way you can learn democracy is by practicing it, by doing it. And um, that's something that is a step forward and it's happening there's a, a bill pending in Congress now called uh, Civic Secures Democracy, which would make civic education nationally on the same par as STEM education. It would fund with billions of dollars teaching civics around the country. All right. So, uh, Dick, we'll close with this question uh, that Monroe and I uh, uh, were discussing in this. Uh, essentially, your book is optimistic about Chicago. Uh, being able to have a functioning democracy. Uh, and Monroe and I agree, uh, despite the fact that we've been very critical, the two of us over time, about Chicago government, that there's greater hope for democracy flourishing in Chicago than there is uh, in the country as a, large, as, as a whole, uh, con considering the divisions that we've been talking about that are far more pronounced on the national level than they are uh, in Chicago. Do you see uh, any hope uh, do you, first of all, agree with that, that there's a greater chance of democracy flourishing in Chicago uh, than uh, nationally? And do you see any hope on the nation, on the national level, uh, for some kind of a shared uh, sense of purpose? So uh, the reason I do Democracy's Rebirth uh, with a view from Chicago is I do think that Chicago, while it's got many imperfections, and Lord knows I've criticized it for over 50 years, uh, that it does hold out a sense of hope that things could get better. But that depends on us taking full control of the government and making best use of it. Uh, and we're starting to do some things uh, more uh, participatory. Uh, the participatory budgeting project that works in eight wards uh, with different aldermen to, to spend some of the city money that's allocated. Uh, even the transition team that I served on with Lori Lightfoot had 400 participants from all over the city, all races and groups, and came up with good recommendations, and so on and so forth. We can certainly talk about the problems in Chicago, and I do in the book, but I think it does uh, give a, a, 
partial pathway for uh, rebirth of democracy in America. In terms of the national stage, I think it's, uh, you know, the famous phrase was all politics is local. I think you build a new democracy from the bottom up. Uh, in fact, this goes back to my first uh, foray in adult politics as opposed to student politics. I was campaign chairman for Eugene McCarthy. I ran Illinois for Eugene McCarthy in 1968. And uh, we thought we would start by electing a president and everything would work out. You know, democracy would roll down like water from the hills. Uh, it didn't work out that way. Um, we had to go back and start groups like independent precinct organization and the board assembly and the community zoning board. We had to do it from the bottom up. And I think that's really going to be the answer for the country. I do think it is possible for us to have a fantastic country if we make the effort, but it is not going to be easy. This is going to be a fight. Uh, Eddie Verdoliak, who's not usually one to listen to on most questions since he's gone to jail three times for corruption, Nonetheless, he said in city council when I was still alderman, if you're going to fight the machine, you better bring lunch. If you're going to make democracy in America, you better bring lunch. It's not the job for a day. It's not the job for a week. It's the job for decades. And we're going to have a, a big battle ahead of us on every front. And my view is that we don't all have to do everything. Some people want to deal with the corruption issue. Some people want to deal with the problems of the electoral college. Some people will want to deal with the inequality of race and income. Um, doesn't matter. Deal with something. Take up one of the challenges to democracy and make a contribution there, and we will all be better off. Well put, Dick, Dick Simpson. That's a great quote. I'd never heard it. Uh, if you're going to fight the machine, you better bring lunch. Absolutely. And if you're going <laughs> to... If you better, if you're gonna fight uh, Trump, make sure you got lunch and dinner because it's gonna be a long haul. All right, Dick Simpson, thank you very much. Monroe Anderson, thank you very much, and DJ Nate, thank you as well. 